0: Welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media. We provide business professionals with insights and ideas for protecting their people from the vast array of threats facing organizations today. Each week, you'll hear advice and best practices from an experienced safety leader. Here's your host, Peter Steinfeld. Hello. I hope your week is going well. Today, I'm excited to welcome a former intelligence analyst at the DEA, a celebrated civil rights attorney, a U.S. Capitol ombudsman, a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert, and a global Amazon executive. You may think I'm introducing a full panel of experts, but I'm talking about the one and only Marcia K. Thompson Esquire. In this episode, Marcia shares her unique perspective on how leaders can develop a safety culture that puts people first. Let's get into the conversation. Marcia, thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk with you because your expertise around safety culture is a really very much a common theme on this podcast. And if you get the culture right at a company, the rest is just so much easier to accomplish. So thanks again for being here.
1: Oh, thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Well, just to give everyone some context, can you start by telling us just a little bit about your career?
1: I started out actually straight out of undergrad. I worked for the Drug Enforcement Administration. Which is actually seems now to be one of the coolest jobs because everybody seems to want to ask about it, even though it was in the 1900s. But <laughs> um, it was it, it was a a great opportunity. Um, I did an internship for two years working in national security intelligence with DEA as a student, and shortly after passing the bar exam, I started working my first corporate position with a data and technology company, teaching law enforcement and. Legal practitioners, how to actually use data to improve their company's efficiency and effectiveness. So I did that. And then I worked at the county level, working with children that had experienced some type of trauma. And so served as a guardian at litem for children for quite a while. And then I also litigated for the county on cases with foster care or children in care of the state. And then eventually I ended up working on Capitol Hill as an ombuds and was really one of the problem solvers for. Any issue on Capitol Hill, and then I transitioned quite a bit. I ended up being a professor after some time being a litigator, started a family, and decided that I wanted to teach. And so I became a full-time professor for almost twelve years. Taught criminal justice, social justice, all law classes, and peace studies, criminal conflict resolution, all times of trial, ad, all kinds of things. Really, really enjoyed that work. And then from that point, I, I actually transitioned to Chicago. And from there, I started working actually in a safety and security firm, one of the top firms in the country. So I went there as vice president and started working on police reform and reviews of incidents that happened in different workplaces. And then while in Chicago, I started working for the University of Chicago Police Department. And I was over most things that deal with internal operations of the police department, and then also anything dealing with the community, anything dealing with youth, And I have worked, again, with another large tech company where I deal with data and community innovation. And so that gives you kind of the gist of where I've come from and where I'm at.
0: Well, the gist is quite impressive. It's an amazing career with just so many different experiences, which I think is great because it allows you to bring just a different lens that people would otherwise bring to a job and an experience that you're trying to promote. And that wisdom is incredibly valuable. So as you think about all those different things you've done, what's the common thread in all of that?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've thought about that. I know that I feel like every job, I actually did a a speech on creating safe spaces. We talk about employee safety, and I actually was able to do a chronology of my different jobs. And in each one of them, I learned a different skill set, but I think the common thread would be creating a space for people to really thrive in a crisis scenario in a non-crisis scenario when everything's good but also after something significant has happened how do you create an environment for people to be resilient in the workplace and I, so i would say that that resiliency is probably the the common core how do i help someone build resiliency after something has happened even from working with kids who had gone through trauma to, you know, being an ombuds, which is usually in response when someone comes to me because something's happened at work that has caused them angst and they need some advice on where they should go, how they should address it. And then as a chief diversity equity and inclusion officer, oftentimes I was, you know, helping leaders and helping staff understand how to interact with other people in a different environment that come from different places and different spaces and may not all have the same thoughts on how to get to the same goal. And so I think just, you know, helping people just get through tough times and and also make sure that we appreciate the gifts around us from other people and utilize those gifts that other people bring and being able to recognize those gifts in other people. So I think that those are some of the common things that I've seen in all the roles that I've had.
0: It's so true. I mean, organizations are just legal entities. It's the people that make them. So, with that in mind, how do safety and security leaders really need to think about the people experience in their roles?
1: Yeah, oh, gosh, I've learned over many years in different, again, the various different roles that I've I've touched on. That I've had the, I guess, the luxury of being across enterprises. So even as the ombuds, anybody on Capitol Hill could call me. From someone who worked in the gardens to someone who was the chief of whatever division. And so I had access to all the people. I didn't have access to them every day, but I would encourage leaders that do have organizations to really get to know their people. If you know your people, then you can recognize behavior changes in your people. And every organization that I've gone into after a crisis, when you interview someone and you start talking to them, you hear all these things That for me, it's easy to see afterwards that were people-oriented activities. Oftentimes, there's clear trends and patterns in behavior that changed over time, and if they knew that individual, they would see those subtle little differences in the way somebody shows up. For instance, you and I are really good friends, Peter, and since I know that, and I know that you come to work in a very happy attitude every day, you're hardworking, you're never late, and all of a sudden you start missing work you're not happy and you really are not engaging with your your you know colleagues and friends if i'm your leader or you know your supervisor those are behaviors that should be we would say red flags that something is going on in your life it doesn't mean it would result in some type of internal safety issue but it could mean that me engaging with you could mitigate you potentially becoming a problem in the workplace, safety or otherwise. And so I really do stress that, that we really need to to recognize that because I won't say every time, but I'd say a great deal of the time afterwards, there were signs that people missed and it's because we're all busy. It's because that person may not have directly reported to someone, but there are people in that lane and in that chain of command for the individuals that if they had paid closer attention to those subtle changes in behavior, then it probably could have changed the trajectory of some of the incidents that I've worked on post-crisis.
0: So it sounds like your counsel then is, as a leader, part of your job, you should think about your time in a day. You've got 100% of your time. You should carve out a certain percentage to really just focus on the people side of things. And if you're not doing that, it's going to really cause issues down the road, potentially.
1: I would say yes, absolutely. And I'm I would say I'm an old school leader with some new school thoughts, but definitely there's theories of leadership that many people have heard, but one that I used to work with a judge on, he used to always talk about the walking around. Walk around. We don't, obviously in this day and age, we don't walk around that often because we're usually at home working on the computer, but how do you manage that type of relationship building through the computer, which we should do another podcast on that alone. But that method of actually going out and meeting your staff and having that open door policy we used to talk about and creating an environment is what I would say, or a culture of you're welcome to come talk to me. And then also working with your other service providers within your organization. Some leaders are just not comfortable, Peter, just to be honest. So I am happy that I'm a, you know, outgoing, extroverted, open leader. Not every leader that I've worked with has that personality. And so they're not as comfortable Talking about their personal life or asking other folks well, how are their kids, how was the soccer game, how was your weekend? And some people are not comfortable sharing those things. So, not every leader has to be that happy go slap you on the shoulder, talk to you kind of leader. But I do think that getting to know your folks within your personal comfort zone and being genuine and authentic in your leadership will still allow your people to come to you when they have concerns and know that even if you're not a I'm going to walk in and ask you how your weekend type leader. You're still a leader that cares enough to hear if there's something going on. And if you're not comfortable with that, then making sure that your employees know what resources are available for them in the workplace. And that's another part that sometimes w- we as leadership don't do enough of that to really promote the benefits that we offer around workplace health and safety, which includes, you know, our employee assistance programs, our HR partners our ombuds, people that are there. If you're not the right leader and you can't be that person, then there are people that are trained to do that. And so we should definitely promote other avenues of support. If you're not like myself, who I'd be happy to listen to someone and then still send them to the right resource because I may not be able to solve their problem, but at least they have an opportunity to come to me and say there is a problem.
0: Yeah, I think that's so true. You just have to be honest, frank, and genuine. If you're not that person, Let people know that. And then they know, hey, when I go to you, I know how you're going to act because you're not that person. But I also know I can trust you'll point me to the right person. So I think that just creates a much better outcome. Absolutely. Well, many of our listeners are at least partially responsible for the safety culture of their organizations. And as I mentioned earlier, culture is a recurring theme on this podcast. Safety outcomes are just so much better when safety is actually part of the culture and not just something that you have to do. So, with that in mind, what advice do you have for creating, maintaining, or
1: improving a culture? Well, I think culture is, I mean, that's a, another podcast too. It's a really deep, deep topic. And right now, I think a lot of people are struggling with that, you know, maintaining the culture of a company or organization or entity. So, I think it starts with having a core value, whatever that core value is. And if its core value is safety, then that helps to build that culture of safety. And so if the, from the leadership all the way through to the first line employee, they have to understand how they support that culture and even more so how what they do plays into that culture. And I've not seen many organizations that are good at this. So we got a lot of work to do to really build true culture from top to bottom. But I have seen one organization I won't give them a shout out on because I try to maintain privacy with my clients, but it was one of my favorite clients. And they had a moment when they were actually having a cultural shift. So they had had one culture for many, many years. It's a very, very well known organization, but they had one culture that pretty much everybody knows. And in that culture, safety was paramount. And so when I came to work with them, I actually talked to the leader and the leader said, I challenge you. To find anyone in any of our divisions that doesn't know how their job ties to our culture of safety, and to me, that was profound. First of all, don't challenge me because I'm going to take the chapter. (laughs) Um, So that was that was the first thing. But I was like, wow, to be that comfortable as a leader of an organization to say that anybody you talk to, they will know how their job ties into our culture of safety. And so I I went on a mission. And so I asked every random person I saw in the hallway in every building that I was doing my work, I'd say, you know, hey, Peter, how does your job tie into the safety of the mission here and the culture? And there was no way they could have known who I was going to run into. So it was not like a plant. I mean, I, I honestly could answer the question and they would say, my job is X and if I don't do this, then this could cause Y and that could result in some catastrophic incident. And I was profoundly impacted by that because that to me shows it can be done, that you can have an entire organization that is built around a culture of safety. But also I also found that they were proud that they knew how their job tied into the overall culture. And so as organizations, that gave me insight into building culture that it has, everyone has to know how they tie into it. Because if you feel like you're outside of it, then you don't support it. But if you feel like you are a critical component of whatever that culture is, and particularly in safety, then you're going to protect it. And therefore, you're going to self, self-police, self self-monitor, self-promote all the things that you want an organization to do. When you want a organization of ethics, you want people to come forward when they see someone violating that core value. When you want a culture of belonging. You want everybody to come forward if someone feels like they're not feeling like they belong. And so in a culture of safety, it's the same thing. If you know how you contribute to it and that your job is just as important as the CEO or the VP or the administrator of a federal agency, then you're going to support that safety culture.
0: No, that's huge. And I love how you started the conversation by saying most organizations are really bad at this because it's hard to do. And I think I would just extrapolate that a little bit and say, I think what it's really hard to do is to establish those core principles or that core value. And once you do, then everything becomes really easy. Like, it's not something that every person in that organization could tell you how their job ties to safety if the company hadn't done the really hard work up front to establish that core principle and tell everyone, this is how we're going to adhere to things. And as you think about every little thing that comes up in the day in your job, Always point back to this core first principle. And then you will make the right decision based on that. So it really becomes easy if you do the hard work up front shifting
1: there. It does. It does. And that's, and I think people do it after scenarios of unsafe outcomes. And that's why I said it's refreshing for me to go into an organization such as the one I mentioned, where they had those core values. They had those core principles. And it just was, it was just refreshing to go around the country and talk to different people and see that they really valued safety, but it also has to be fair. And so when people feel like there's fairness in an organization around the core values and that everybody else is being treated the same way, again, from the top to the first tier employees, then they also will feel like they're part of that. And that's sometimes I see where there have been deterioration of cultural values is because some people in an organization feel like they're not being treated the same and therefore that tears away from them feeling like those core values are actually true to the company because they're not seeing them modeled by everyone. And so that's one way to erode a culture. So I guess the converse is to make sure that everybody does feel like they're part and that they're being treated fairly at all levels and that that information, like you said, is being shared at all levels and then being modeled by your leadership. That's another telltale sign of tearing away of your culture is if Your leadership team is not modeling the behaviors that you're asking others to adhere to as well.
0: Yeah, consistency from the top down is so critical. Well, that's the soft stuff that's really hard to get your head around, which is why I think a lot of organizations struggle with it. And then on the flip side, our listeners are also expected to present data or recommend data-driven solutions and then measure the success of their initiatives. And as I always say, you can tug on the heartstrings of executives with anecdotes but you can only tug on their purse strings with empirical data. So what advice do you have when it comes to pursuing, obtaining, and leveraging safety data to help with all that?
1: You know, that's an interesting question in the sense of everything that I've done as I look back on my career has had something to do with data. I'm married to a data scientist, but I, I jokingly <laughs> say I can't add. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of things, you know, starting back when I worked for uh, DEA, national security and working intelligence, it is data. It is data that turns into intelligence. And so as organizations, a lot of times we have data that's there. We just don't use it. We don't use it to identify trends. We don't use it to identify prospective incidents that could occur. We don't predict or, you know, use inducted or deductive reasoning with the data. And so I think as in a safety framework, Unfortunately, I've been on the tail end of lots of incidents of internal safety crisis scenarios. And you go back, as I mentioned, and the data was there. It was either in a file or in a computer or on someone's desk. And if they had put it together in a logical frame and actually looked at it, they would have seen the trends. That would have at least alerted someone that there may be some incident here that needs to be addressed. Or this person's behavior has changed. We're really, again, it goes back to my common thread is people. Because a lot of times these safety incidents are people failures or policy failures or procedure failures. I call them my, my three P's and almost everything I talk about comes back to those three things. And I've added that fourth P. It really is data, but I had to say proof. Because it wouldn't be a p. Peter, my didn't. I say data, but <laughs> but data, I realized was the core of all of these things with the people, with the processes, with the policies. Because if you look at them, there was some data component that would have helped to minimize or mitigate the outcome. And again, you don't have to be a mathematician or statistician to look at data. It's good to have those folks to work with you so that you can truly establish a. A measurable baseline. And so I work very hard to find great people that can add and that I can point to them the things they should be looking at. You have to have somebody that knows how to create baselines with the science so that you can show that to your leadership team. The return on investment obviously is safety for me. And I am so happy to say that in the, I'd say the last 10 years, I've seen a lot of companies invest. In using data as predictors of how we should deploy our resources, how we should better staff, and also how we should look at safety issues around our people. And then the last part, Peter, I think is just as important as establishing the baseline is the measurements of those baseline numbers, but then how do you implement programs so that you can show progress? What are the programs that integrate into those other three P's, your people, your policies and your procedures so that that data can show that there's been movement in the area that you're trying to improve. And if it's safety, if it's security, if it's people feeling like they're in a safer place and then look at, you know, what creates that psychological safety for employees, not just physical safety. So all of that data is important for not only again, our processes and our policies. But most importantly, again, for me, it's the people to make sure they feel safe. And so data presenting to them the likelihoods of outcomes not occurring again, being able to show that you've put things in place to mitigate those safety procedures as well as physical safety procedures to keep them safe once they come to the workplace. So data is is just at the core of all of those things.
0: Well, I think a fantastic takeaway of all that is that our listeners should not be afraid of the data. They should seek it out. But at the same time, they shouldn't feel like they need to be a data expert. Find other people to help you that are data scientists that can help you go through it. You bring the context, you bring the experience, they can bring the technical skills to make it useful. So I think that's fantastic.
1: You know, Peter, I want to say I had a class exactly called that. Don't mm. be afraid of the data. That's awesome. That, is, that I think that is the key thing that those of us who are not mathematicians or statisticians or scientists, historically, we'd stay in our lane. Yes, <laughs> we, And we didn't really see that there is a quantitative and a qualitative aspect to data that you can actually use as a leader. And if you're not in that lane, there are so many people that would love to support and give you the data in a way that you can understand it too. Yes. And that's the thing. I, I love that. I love what you just said about seeking it out. And then, you know what? This is just one other part that I would throw out there is oftentimes it's a lack of technology to do it too, because it does take a lot of brain power. Now with technology, it's actually made it a lot easier for the non data scientists and the non technical folks to actually input that data and actually have some outputs that come out to really help you better design your processes and policies around your people safety.
0: Yeah, it truly never has been easier. But as we wrap up here, speaking of classes, you mentioned that you've conducted quite a bit of training in your career. So what's the one lesson you always try to impart to your learners?
1: If you give me two, then I'll give you a good answer.
0: <laughs> you, so, you got two. Go ahead. <laughs> all right. So
1: one is for anybody who's doing the training, make sure it's engaging. I would say fun, but make sure it's engaging, particularly around top topics that are tough. So that's one thing that I have tried to do all the trainings that I've done, being a lawyer and civil rights, all of these topics oftentimes when I talk about these topics, they're not the topics that most people want to talk about. So right. you know about ethics and codes of conduct and sexual harassment and safety, those are topics that are normally considered compliance topics. and companies do them one historically because they had to in order to be in compliance. I say that if you make it engaging, then people will want to talk about those topics. And so that's the one that I would say is make it engaging whoever is doing the training. And then I would say the most important part of that is because it's engaging, they will actually remember it. If it's not engaging, they'll lose that intellectual property that you just provided and the muscle memory, it will go right away because one in one ear and out the other. And so if we make it engaging, even around tough topics, such as safety and compliance, those topics can be engaging, they can be powerful, and they can be meaningful. So I think that that's, there you go, there's my one word, meaningful. Make sure it's meaningful to the people that are being trained. If they feel it, and they feel that it has some impact on their day-to-day jobs, then they will leave with something that they can use that training for. If it's so high level- They won't get it, nor will they understand how it applies to them, and it will be just a box being checked, and it won't be implemented when they leave. So I would say make it meaningful to every individual in that class and that they know that it actually does impact their day-to-day experiences as a leader or as a frontline employee.
0: Yeah, that's very sage advice. It's got to be meaningful to the individuals, and that's the key. It's individuals. They all have different meanings they bring to things, so you have to try to find that and weave that in. Marcia, thank you so much for taking the time today to share your story, your experience, and advice with our listeners. I really love your four Ps, and not just because my name starts with one.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Peter. It's been my (laughs) pleasure, and thank you for having me today.
0: Fantastic. Well, you can read more about Marcia by checking the links in the show notes. Please join us next week to hear more insights and ideas for protecting your people. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and
1: business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.